Hear now the word of the Lord. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the older Mary, excuse me, and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his other disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the, to, to the soldiers and said, Tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him they worshiped him. But some doubted And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's holy and inspired word. It contains everything that we need for faith and for life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. Let's go to him now in prayer. Oh, how much we thank you for the Bible. Please sanctify us by the truth as contained in this Holy Bible. Sanctify us by the truth. Thy word is truth. And we ask this in the name of, the, the, uh, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let me confess on the, 
on the forefront that given the occasion, I feel more compelled to provide a clear demonstration of the defense for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus today. I'm aware that we have many visitors here that may not believe in the resurrection or may be skeptical. I want you to know what we believe and of our rationale to do this. I also do this for the sake of believers to remind you that our hopes are not built on the sinking sand of myths and fables and wishful thinking, but on the clearest and most rational evidence given to us from the New Testament. So I preface this sermon in this way, to tell you that as we proceed, that I wish to provide an answer to skeptics and increasing comfort for believers With those things in mind, let us proceed. I just read the entire uh, 28th chapter of Matthew. This is a bit unusual for a resurrection sermon. We don't usually include the Great Commission portion of the Scriptures with the resurrection reading. But I have become convinced that the inclusion of the Great Commission go and make disciples of all nations, especially in its fulfillment in the subsequent labors of the disciples, provides tremendous insight for the understanding of this passage and for understanding what happened with the Jesus movement the first century A.D. Those words, we can say with little doubt, were fulfilled in the most dramatic of fashions. As we will see, I ask one simple question. What happened on that fateful day, the first day of the week, the pass after Passover in AD 33? What happened that made a tiny band of ragamuffins mighty evangelists of the man Jesus Christ? The doctrine that I want to expound today is this. What happened on the third day? What happened on the third day? How you answer that question dictates whether you believe that Jesus is truly Lord and whether there is meaning in this life and whether or not there is hope beyond the grave. This is a really important question. And I wish for you to consider it with me today. In our exposition, I would like to ask the following questions. One, was it a spiritual resurrection? Two, was it a hallucination? Three, was it a conspiracy? Four, what if the disciples were just naive? And finally, What if it is true? What if the bodily resurrection of Jesus is actually true? At the beginning of the book of Acts, there were approximately 120 Christians. After Jesus' three years of ministry, when he died on Friday, he left behind 120 disciples. 
Yes, there had been greater times of popularity, but those who had previously flocked to hear him preach demanded his crucifixion on Friday. This was not a popular movement. It had upset the religious and the political order in Jerusalem. It was seemingly over when Jesus was dead. He had left behind a small band of followers, many of whom were weak and timid and cowardly. But then Sunday came and things changed. Suddenly these fearful and timid people became mighty evangelists, responding to a a command to go and make disciples of all nations. And they did so with reckless abandonment and great success. What happened that propelled this Jesus movement into a powerful force? A force that the world had never seen before. This movement became so far-reaching that by 317 AD, the the emperor, Constantine, had to reckon with it and officially legalized the, the, the religion for the very first time. Then, by 350, Christians represented a majority of the Roman Empire. The sociologist Rodney Stark, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, estimates that by 350 AD, there were 33 million Christians in the Roman Empire that consisted of 60 million citizens. From 120 disciples to 33 million in three centuries. Stark asks the question, the obvious question, how was it done? How does a tiny and obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? How does this happen? How is this possible The Christian answer is simple. Their leader rose from the dead. Jesus did not remain in the tomb, but what is your answer? I wish to walk through this passage and consider it in light of some classical objections to Christ's resurrection and show you how the Bible dispels these objections. Then I will show you some ramifications of the resurrection of Christ. The first question is, was it a spiritual resurrection? There have been many, especially in the last century, especially liberal Christianity, that said, well, when we say that Jesus rose from the dead, we, don't, we do not mean that he actually bodily rose from the dead. People just don't do that. But the early Christians believed that he rose spiritually. Others say this would be a natural, a natural con- conclusion considering the traumatic experience they had just witnessed. But let us be clear about this. This is certainly not what the early church believed and claimed. They claimed to have an encounter with a bodily resurrected Jesus. And our passage makes this clear. In the first place, the narrative found here in Matthew and in the other three accounts 
Luke, Mark, and John told this as if it were historical. Let's look at verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. The very beginning of the story was set up as a description of an historical event. The time, the characters, and the place given. The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and such details are unnecessary for myths and fictional tales. They see an angel and describe him in detail. He speaks of them and tells them, come and see the place where he lay. They look and find no physical body. If they were later to recount a spiritual resurrection, they need not account for an empty tomb. Indeed, the tomb doesn't need to be empty, but it is empty, and they need to see this. Then, after they were given instructions to go and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen and will meet them in Galilee, another place, they depart, and on the way, Jesus meets them. We read in verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his body, or excuse me, his feet, and worshipped him. You do not need, excuse me, you do not touch the feet and hold on to a spiritual vision. You hold on to the feet of a person with a material body. Now let me say this, nothing I have said at this point proves that Jesus was bodily resurrected. But what it does say is what the church believed and confirmed. They claimed to have seen and met with a bodily Jesus. The church did not claim a spiritual resurrection, but a bodily one. So we must take this objection off the table. As J. Gresham Machen said in his classical work, Christianity and Liberalism, you can claim that if you want, but you must realize that this is another religion, not historic Christianity. Christians believe in the bodily resurrection. They claim to have seen Christ raised in the flesh. This is what compelled them to march into the lion's den and proclaim Jesus. Not a mystical spiritual experience, but a real flesh and blood experience with Jesus. The Jesus who was dead and has now come to life. But there's a second possibility that many have suggested. Maybe there were, they were just hallucinating. This leads us to the second heading. Was it a hallucination? This theory is most easily refuted by what we find in the gospel accounts. The thing about hallucinations is this. Is this. They are unique to individuals. In other words, hallucinations are individual experiences. And in the eyewitness accounts, there are numerous individuals who claim to have seen the same thing. In the first section, 
the two Marys both see the same thing and recount it to the apostles. In the last section, the eleven disciples claim to see it. In time, Paul claims to see it and then claims in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared, Jesus appeared to 500 at the same time. And he says many of them are alive even now. Check the story. The hallucination theory just cannot hold water. How was it possible that several hundred people claimed to see the same hallucination at the same time? This is just not tenable. But maybe you are asking, well, what if they lied? Okay, so they are claiming that they had seen Jesus, but what if this is an elaborate conspiracy? You are not the first ones to suggest this. But in verses 11 through 15, we find that the religious leaders of Jesus' own day started this this conspiracy. Let us read it again. While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this is the story that has been spread abroad among the Jews to this day. From this episode, we can deduce a, a, very, a very, excuse me, from this episode, we can deduce a few very important things. First, we can conclude that the body is gone. It cannot be accounted for. If it, if it had been, it could have been produced. If it had been, it could have been produced. And then the Jesus movement is likely over. No one knows where it is. And to this day, it has never been found. If there was a body, there was no need for a conspiracy theory. But there is a second thing I wish you to consider. There is no explanation for the missing body. There is no reasonable explanation for the missing body that is apart from the resurrection. The loss of the body is really quite inexplicable, isn't it? The Jews had much political and economic prosperity to lose if Jesus rose from the dead. His teaching had completely undermined all that they did and taught. They wanted him dead. And they wanted to excuse, to ensure that nothing gave this movement momentum that called their existence into question. It was in their best interest, insofar as their way of life was to continue, to ensure that nothing happened to the body. So they asked Pontius Pilate to place guards by the tomb to ensure that nothing would happen. In verse 63 of chapter 27, we read, 
Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said, You have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Jesus' body was the key to their future. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, then nothing he said can be trustworthy. Jesus' body need to be produced to prevent that from happening. Or else the Jewish religious system would be turned upside down. They must do everything possible to make sure that doesn't happen. The very fact that the body disappears is inexplicable. There is a third observation here, which I think is really important. The Jews and the guards alone benefit from a conspiracy. Conspiracies always benefit the orchestrators. They really cannot gain traction otherwise. Now let me ask you a very basic question. Who is to gain from this lie? What did the Jews gain? They potentially silenced the Jewish, excuse me, the Jesus movement and preserved their way of life. What do the Romans, the Roman guards gain from this lie? They saved their lives. They had fallen asleep on the job. And as has been well documented, Roman guards losing what they were guarding was a capital offense. And they would certainly have been executed. So this lie saves their hides. Verse 14 says, The chief priests tell them, And if this comes to the governor's ear, ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. The guards were paid with their very lives and they were paid very generously to keep this a secret. But this leads to a very important question. What did the apostles have to gain? If Jesus is not really raised, if the disciples really stole his body, what do they have to gain? In legal terms, what was the motive You might answer, well, they will have control and power over people. The early Christians, in in response, the early Christians were weak and impoverished people. So much so that Paul could write to the church at Corinth, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. If Jesus were not raised, then their preaching of the resurrection is really vanity. And they all knew it. The Apostle Paul, who has claimed to to have seen the resurrected Jesus, wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified 
about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still dead in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are a people most to be pitied. That's First uh, Corinthians five, excuse me, fifteen, twelve, and following. The apostle says, in essence, here: if this is not true, first, then, then our belief in a resurrected Christ is silly and foolish. Second, we are guilty of blasphemy, misrepresenting God. We third, we are still dead in our sins. And fourth, we have no hope beyond the grave. Or to put it another way, if this is just an elaborate conspiracy, then in the Great Commission, Jesus' apostles obeyed the command of a person who no longer existed and fulfilling a command that was never truly given. I want you to hear that. In the Great Commission, Jesus' apostles obeyed the command of a person who no longer existed, fulfilling a command that was never truly given. They would do so at great risk to their lives and livelihood. There is a reason that after the crucifixion, we find the apostles hiding. It is not rational, it is not reasonable to believe that the apostles deliberately deliberately began a conspiracy here, for they had nothing to benefit from this lie. They would put themselves in grave danger because of this proclamation of theirs. And it is quite hard to believe that they are lying, especially given the fact that all of them suffer greatly, and in church tradition, The church tradition maintains that all except the Apostle John received the martyr's death. The fact seems to highlight their credibility and their innocence of conspiracy. As the philosopher Blaise Pascal once said, I believe witnesses who get their throats cut. Well, there's another possibility. You may say, maybe they were just sadly mistaken. Was it just naivete? Maybe you're asking this. Maybe they sincerely believed that they had seen Jesus in bodily form, and in reality they had not. Maybe these were just good-natured but gullible people who believed what they wanted to believe. They were different than the modern thinking man, and they were more superstitious than we are at present in this scientific age. Maybe they were just naive and their emotional, in their emotional state, they just reached a conclusion that they hoped was true. But again, this does not correspond with what we know about the ancient world and with what we read in these gospel accounts. The, the reality is simply this. They were not any more naive about death and resurrection than you and I are. 
in, in, in the experience of these people, death was batting a thousand. Death was undefeated. And it eventually took everyone that they knew and would also take them. When Jesus appeared to the disciples, the disciples had a pretty hard time believing it. We read in verse 17, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. This is not the description of gullible people who, who just believed what they wanted to believe. These disciples were no more susceptible to, to superstition than you and I are. They saw a man that was buried a few days before, and some doubted. They doubted themselves. They doubted their senses. They doubted their sanity, just as you and I would. How could he be standing before me? He's dead. He was crucified. They all must have thought. And of course, Thomas very defiantly doubted, saying in John chapter 20, Not unless I see the wounds will I believe. Therefore, it took some time for them to believe. And so Jesus stuck around for 40 days, revealing himself to them, eating and drinking with them to ensure them that he was not a hallucination or a figment of their imagination. He was really alive in the flesh before them. Again, I return to the original question. What happened on that first day of the week in AD 33? Considering the information before you, what is the most reasonable and logical? It is that Jesus actually did rise from the dead, as he said. It really is, isn't it? Now, I'm not claiming that that is an easy thing to believe. I'm not claiming that is, it is not a stupendous reality. But in light of the information, it is the only logical one. It is the only logical conclusion. Why else would the apostles preach this? Why else would these men risk their lives to maintain and preach that he was in fact resurrected? How else can we explain the explosion of this message onto the world and its remarkable power to transform lives? The most logical explanation is that that it happened, just as the eyewitnesses said. This brings me to a final question before we conclude. What if it is true? What if the bodily resurrection that, that the apostles preached is actually true. I want to suggest three things to you as we close. First, if what the disciples and the eyewitnesses said is true, then Jesus is really Lord. One commentary wrote on this. Sometimes people approach me and say, I really struggle with this aspect of Christian teaching. I like this part uh, of Christian belief, but I don't think I can accept that part. I usually respond, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? 
The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That is how the first hearers felt that heard the reports of the resurrection. They knew that if it was true, we can't live our lives any way we want. It also meant we don't have to be afraid of anything. Not a Roman sword, not cancer, nothing. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. If he has really risen, as you have heard it, and you are obliged now to bow to him and worship, you are now to bow to him, obliged to him, to worship. If what he said about the resurrection was actually fulfilled, if he has the power even over death, he is sovereign even over you. And you will be called to account if you refuse to yield to him. He is king of kings and lord of lords, and you must trust him as such and obey him. Second, if what the disciples and eyewitnesses say is true, there is hope beyond the grave. Death is coming to us all, and we all know this. If there is no hope beyond the present life, our future indeed is gloomy. We will live in constant fear of the present. We will do everything possible to stay out of harm's way. This is why it is inexplicable that the timid apostles would risk their lives for a lie. A lie which really did not promise them anything different. There is not a different outcome. At the end, it will all be over. But if Christ has indeed risen, he has the power to raise from the grave. If Jesus has not been raised, then all of his promises for eternal life are empty promises. But if if he did, he has conquered the grave. Then he has the power to rescue others from the grave as well. That is our hope. In Christ, he who called himself the resurrection and the life, in John 11, we have hope and a future that extends beyond the grave. And we need fear nothing in this world. The third implication of what the disciples and eyewitnesses said is there is meaning in this life. There is meaning in this life. If Christ is not raised, and if there is no hope beyond the grave, there really is not much reason for living at the present. Leo Tolstoy, in his autobiographical account, recognized this and put things this way. My question, the question that had brought me to the edge of suicide when I was 50 years old, was the simplest question lying in the soul of every human being. From a silly child to the wisest of the elders, the question without which life is impossible. Such was the way I felt about the matter. The question is this, what will come of what I 
do today and tomorrow? What will come of what I do today and tomorrow? What will come of my entire life? Expressed differently, the question may be, why should I live? Why should I wish for anything or do anything? Or to put it still differently, is there any meaning in my life that will not be destroyed by my inevitably approaching death? Tolstoy recognized the the logical consequences of mortality. If death is the end, why does anything matter here? There is nothing that you can do that will outlive you and, and benefit you. There is nothing that you can do or say which has any lasting purpose except for the one that you make. The purpose will end when you breathe your last. Don't you see? If Jesus has risen, if there is more to life than living and dying, then you are here for a purpose. Then Christ, who has begun this new world order, has kept you here for a purpose. And part of that purpose is found in this great commission that we read about in verse 18 through 20. The first is that you are called to be his disciples. You are here to live for him. And secondly, you are here to make him known. You are here for Christ. If he has risen, he is truly king. And your life has meaning which is fulfilled in him. Now how then will you live? Will you yield to the truth of the resurrection and yield to the Lord Jesus Christ? To resist him is to choose to live a purposeless life. But in submitting to him, you have everything to gain. Won't you yield to him now and find life in abundance? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, We pray in consequence of a resurrected body that was produced when you rose Jesus from the, from the grave. And that gives us purpose. And that gives us life. That gives us life in abundance. I pray that everyone will hear, hear, know, this purposeless, excuse me, this purposeful life and yield to the Lord Jesus Christ and worship Him and adore Him. We pray that not to do so would be to live a purposeless life. So I pray that all this congregation accepts and yields to the resurrected Christ. We have every reason to believe this. We don't have any doubts that can offer an objection to this. Except our own hearts. 
Make our own hearts yield to Him. Make our own hearts regenerate. Breathe new life into us this day and have us yield to the resurrected Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.